the last part of the chapter that we'll look at next time on the, I guess the 27th, uh, we'll be uh, looking at the Great Tribulation. But uh, we, we'll finish this history lesson. History for us, prophecy for, for Daniel, uh, picking up again uh, back where we left off in verse number 17. If you remember, uh, we were looking at this prophecy, and it was be, being given to Daniel by an angel, uh, an angel of the Lord. And uh, it was a prophecy about the three or four hundred years that would take place after Daniel's death. And then, there, and then the angel, there's a gap in, in, in his prophecy, and he picks it up, and we'll pick that up in verse 35 and 36 next time. Uh, he goes all the way to the Great Tribulation. And he began the prophecy by prophesying the next four, that there would be four more rulers in Persia, uh, and then they would be followed by a great ruler in Greece. We know that to be Alexander the Great. And then uh, Alexander the Great would only live a short time. His kingdom would only last a long time, and he would die at the age of 33, and his kingdom would be divided up among his four generals. And then the prophecy fic- picks up, and we take a look at two of those generals, two of the generals that, that uh, had empires, uh, one to the north of Israel, and one to the south of Israel. The best way to remember them, the Seleucians were in Syria to the north, the Syrian kingdom, the Seleucian kingdom. It was a Greek kingdom. And the Ptolemies were in the south in Egypt. So, you know, it's Ptolemy the first, Ptolemy the second, Antiochus is Seleucus, and part of the Seleucian Empire, Antiochus the first, Antiochus the second, Antiochus the great. You got all of these these Antiochuses and the Ptolemies, but it's the Seleucian Empire and the Ptolemy Empire that we're looking at. And the reason we're looking at them, because they were, they were affecting Israel. Everything that, this prophecy isn't about them, it's about the nation of Israel. And so all of these battles that were going on, these wars between the Ptolemies and the Seleucians were affecting Israel, because every time they marched an army, they had to go through Israel. And in order to feed that army, in order to, to equip that army, they had to pillage the land. And so every time one of these wars took place, in there, and you saw a bunch of them in the text we looked at last week, we're going to see some more tonight. Every time one of these wars took place, it affected the nation of Israel. And they basically were a vassal state. And, and, and before they could even get their crops grown, these armies were coming and taking their tr- crops. Before they could accumulate any goods, the armies were coming and taking their goods. And so... They had a really rough time during this period. And, uh, you know, I, I think basically what the angel was telling Daniel was that, hey, Daniel was praying for this, for a word from the Lord, what's going to happen to the nation because things don't look good. They've gone back into the land and nothing good is happening. Well, the angel basically tells Daniel, nothing good is going to happen to them for a long time. They're going to go through a really tough period of time in the next two or 300 years. It's going to be rough on them. And then they'll take a little bit of a break before the Roman Empire comes in and puts them uh, under their fist. And then they'll stay scattered and in a mess until the end of time when they'll be regathered back into that land. Well, guess what? We live in that time now. And that's the time of the Great Tribulation that we'll be looking at later on. So, so anyway, when we, when we left off last time, the angel was telling... Uh, Daniel about the king of the north, and this time he was talking about Antiochus the Great, maybe one of the greatest Greek leaders of all time. 
and he ruled from 223 to 187 B.C. And in an effort to make peace, or actually to consolidate his kingdom, you remember what he did. We were looking at it last time. He gave his beautiful daughter, Cleopatra, to be the wife of Ptolemy uh, in the south. Well, something happened along the way. His plan was that she would go in there and kind of a, be a, like a spy for him and go in there and help bring down his kingdom. But she fell in love with Ptolemy. And so uh, his plan failed. And instead of standing with her father, she stood with, with Ptolemy. And that's where we want to pick up now in verse number 18. So go with me to, to Daniel chapter 11. And let's pick up in verse number 18. It says, after this... He shall turn his face to the coastlands. And he's talking, we're talking about Antiochus the Great. He goes down, his plan fails with Ptolemy, so he turns to the coastlands. This guy was a conqueror. He was always looking for new lands to pillage and conquer. Uh, and so he turns to the coastlands and shall take many, but a ruler shall bring the reproach against them to the end, and with the reproach removed, he shall turn back on him. Now, what this is talking about uh, when Antiochus the Great fails to, to defeat Ptolemy with his plan of giving his daughter, then he, he turns his efforts to the coastlands, and uh, he runs into a, another army. This time he runs into the Romans, the Roman army, and uh, under the leadership of uh, Scipio. And so Antiochus in 189 is defeated by the Romans. The Romans are starting to become a mighty empire at this point. And uh, he's forced to retreat. Look at verse 19. Then he shall turn his face toward the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and not be found. And there shall rise in his place one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom. Who's the glorious kingdom? Who do you think he's talking about there? Israel, not the United States, Israel. But within a few days or within a short period of time, he shall be destroyed but not in anger or in battle. Now, that's, a, that's several historical events that, that are being prophesied about right there. What happens, Antiochus, in one of his ventures, goes to one of these foreign lands and he attempts to plunder the temple of Jupiter, and he's killed in the process. He wasn't really in battle at that point. Somebody in the temple killed him. And he was, he was succeeded by his son, Seleucus IV, Philopliber, who reigned 12 years before his death in 175 B.C. Now, after Antiochus the Great loses this battle to, to Rome, the Greeks are forced to pay heavy taxes. They become almost like a vassal state to Rome. And so they have to pay tribute to Rome. And so in order to pay tribute to Rome, they, they don't want to pay it themselves, so they start tax, heavily taxing their vassal states. And one of those states happens to be who? It happens to be uh, Israel. So this guy Philopater, or Antiochus Philopater, exacts these heavy taxes. And you can read about it in the book of Maccabees. It's actually recorded in history. Because their tax collector was this guy named Hella. Helodorus, who was, he was Hel, Helodorus, was a proper, proper name. I mean, he gave Israel a lot of trouble. And they write about it in the book of Maccabees. He put heavy taxes on them, and he used brutal tactics in order to collect those taxes. 
I mean, he would come in and take somebody's form, all their cattle, all their wherewithal to make a living. I mean, he just did, he took whatever they had in order to pay this tribute to Rome. And, and uh, it says that uh, uh, Philopper is going to die, but he was not destroyed. Look at what it says. He was not destroyed in anger or in battle. History tells us that he was poisoned by Helidorus, this, this guy, this Helidorus, this tax collector that he hired, liked all the money he was bringing in, and he was, he was putting a lot of money aside for himself and became a very wealthy man, and he decided he wanted to be king, and so he poisoned, at least that's, you know, what, what historians speculate he did, he poisoned Philopater, and so that he could become king. But that's going to lead, pave the way for a king much, much worse than any of the solution kings before him. Who do you think that is? Antiochus Epiphanes. That's the next king that's going to come along. And so we're going to see, a, you know, we get the rest of the... Uh, the rest of this portion of the prophecy is going to all be dedicated to Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, why? Why so much time and effort given to this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes? Because he was really a bad king, especially for Israel. I mean, he was like Hitler as far as, you know, he was like a forerunner of Hitler. And he's also a forerunner of the Antichrist. And so some of the things that he does are exactly what the Antichrist is going to do to Israel. And so this prophecy... It directly relates not only to the immediate future, uh, Daniel's immediate future, but it also relates to, to the time of the end. And so, uh, the, so the angel gives a lot of attention here to this guy Antiochus Epiphanes. And listen to what it says about him. And in his place shall arise, verse 21, a vile person. Now he called himself Epiphanes, Antiochus Epiphanes. What's Epiphanes mean? It means the glory of God, the appearance of God. In other words, when Antiochus felt he was a god, and when you saw Antiochus, you were seeing God. Well, that's not the name God gives him, is it? It's Antiochus the vile. He was a vile person to whom they would not give honor or royalty, but he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. All right, so they didn't want him to be king. They wanted maybe his brothers to be king. Helidorus wanted to be king. But Antiochus was a really smart guy. And so uh, what he did when he heard that his brother had been poisoned, uh, he went to Antioch and he began to make his case with flattery and, and intrigue. And he, he didn't go in with an army. He did it in, in a very... Uh, intelligent way, actually a brutal way, but an intelligent way. He goes in and he makes his case and uh, he flatters all the nobles and he makes his case that he should be the one to take over the empire. And, and just in case they didn't pick him as the emperor, he had his brothers killed and he also had Helidorus killed. So he really was the only candidate left to be king and they made Antiochus Epiphanes king. All right, then in verse number 22, with the force of a flood... With the force of the flood, they, now he's talking about his enemies in the south, shall be swept away from before him and be broken, and also the prince of the covenant. So immediately what he does when he takes power, he goes back to battle with the king of the south, and he has some, some pretty significant victories. 
But he also goes into Israel and he kills the prince of the covenant. He kills the high priest in Israel who at that time was Onias. And so he has Onias killed. And what he does, he sets up his own priesthood. He sets up, he finds enough secular Jews who will support him and he gives them favor and gives them political power. And that's exactly what they do. And in order to do that, he has to have Onias killed. So he has the high priest killed. But that's not all he's going to do. Look at what he, beginning in verse 23, what he does. And after the league is made with him, he shall act deceitfully. For he shall come up and become strong with a small number of people. Now what's going on at this time? There's, there's two Ptolemies, two brothers fighting for power down in Egypt. So he's going to come in and, and actually fan the flames of their animosity towards each other. And he's going to be able to take power over that area without even bringing his army in. And that's why it says, with a small number of people, he actually becomes strong. Then in verse number 24, he shall enter peacefully even into the richest places of the province, and he shall do what his fathers have not done. Now watch what he does. Nor his forefathers, shall he, he shall disperse among them plunder, spoil, and riches among the people. Of all the lands that he's captured, what he does, he goes in and takes from the rich, takes from the people who have money, the people who have goods, the people who have earned their money and earned their goods, and he redistributes it. He takes a good portion of it for himself, and then he redistributes what's left over to the poor. So why is he doing that? To gain the favor of the common people. That's what he tries, just like Rome did when Rome had power. They gave bread to the, to the people in the Colosseum in order to gain their favor. And, and really, you know, I, I, I hear a lot in the political arena today about redistribution of wealth. And that's becoming a popular theme, uh, especially among uh, certain politicians. The problem with redistribution of wealth is the government takes most of it and gives the crumbs to the poor. And so redistribution of wealth didn't work back then and it's not going to work now. But it did work in the sense it worked on behalf not of the poor but on behalf of Antiochus Epiphany because he made a lot of friends with the common people. And, and uh, uh, when he went in to, to, to fight in a land, then, then, uh, in a foreign land, they would support him instead of supporting their leaders and their own army. And so he was able to conquer uh, uh, a lot of land, but only for a short time. So just like the Antichrist, look at verse number 24, he shall enter peacefully even into the richest places of the province. I mean, he, everywhere he went, he would come in peaceably, uh, institute his plan to redistribute the wealth, and then once he had favor, then... Uh, uh, he, would, he would gain power, and he shall devise his plans against the strongholds, but only for a time. He's not going to last long. He only lasted about 10 years, verse 25. It says, he shall stir up his power and his outrage against the king of the south with a great army. They're always fighting. The Ptolemies and the Solutions are always fighting, and most of the time, the Solutions got the best of them. And they were, trying to, they were trying to make that one world order, and they kept fighting to gain power over the second strongest empire of the Greek empire, and that was the, the, uh, 
Ptolemies. But while the Greeks were fighting among themselves, what was happening with Rome? They were becoming stronger and stronger and stronger. And uh, they're about to come on the scene. And they're going to, before this is all over, they're going to destroy Antiochus Epiphanes and the Greeks. But uh, it's all being set up by, by these wars between the north and the south. So he shall stir up his power, verse 25, and his courage against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a very great and mighty army. But the king of the south shall not stand, for his own people shall devise plans against him. For they, his own people, shall devise plans with him. They, will, uh, they won't support him against Antiochus Epiphanes, because Antiochus Epiphanes has given them a lot of goods. He's redistributed the wealth and taken some of that wealth from the Egyptian leaders, and, and uh, they're, they're not going to support their own army. Then in verse 26, Yes, those who eat of the portion of his delicacies shall destroy him and shall destroy the king of the south. And his army shall be swept away and many shall fall down slain. So the king of the south is defeated and he's forced to go to the bargaining table with Antiochus Epiphanes. And look what happens in verse 27. Both these kings' hearts shall be bent on evil. You know, isn't it amazing when you see two countries making some terrible peace treaty that both parties are bent on evil. I mean, you just look at some of the peace treaties that have happened in this world recently, and, and, and people's, the, the hearts of the people of the parties involved in those treaties uh, is, is not bent on good. They're, they're bent on evil. And they shall be, speak lies at the same table. Imagine that, being at a peace treaty table and speaking lies. You know, we made an agreement with North Korea under the Clinton administration for them to disarm their nuclear weapons. And we went to the table with them, both parties with, with evil intentions. And we made an agreement with them. And how well is, what's, how's that worked out for us? I mean, look at what happened the other day. They were saying they, were, they exploded some kind of nuclear weapon. They were saying it was a hydrogen bomb. Whatever it was, it it wasn't good, and he's certainly not living up to that, that peace agreement. So they shall speak lies at the same table, but it shall not prosper, for the end will be at the appointed time. You, you see what, notice the little, the narrative that comes in the end of that verse. But the end will be at the appointed time. In other words, what's, what's the angel telling Daniel? All of this evil that's going on, don't worry about it. It's not it's all part of God's plan. It's not going to disrupt anything that God's going to do. All of this is leading to the appointed time, the appointed time when Israel will be saved. And so, yeah, it looks really bad here. And it's gonna, and he's gonna tell, he kind of takes a break here, and he's going to talk about some other things that happen ter- that are really bad for Israel. But he says all of this is leading up to the appointed time. To the, to the uh, time when, when uh, Antiochus Epiphanes will be put away. From the time when his empire, the Grecian Empire, will be toast. From the time when the old Roman Empire will take power. All of this is part of God's plan. And then the Roman Empire will come to an end. And then we'll come to the end times. But all of this is leading up to the appointed time, to God's appointed time. So all of this has purpose. So 
back to the story, the Jews get wind that uh, Antiochus has been killed in battle. And so they're celebrating in the streets that he's dead. And Antiochus uh, makes this agreement with Ptolemy and then he heads home. And he hears that the Jews have been celebrating his death and so he's mad and he takes revenge. So look what happens in verse 28. While returning to his land with great riches, his move, his, he shall be moved against the holy covenant, against the holy people. So he shall do damage and return to his own land. At the appointed time, he shall return and go toward the south. Again, in, he went back to fight Ptolemy again. But it shall not be like the former or the latter. Because he's going to catch, now Rome is coming into the picture. For ships from Cyprus, or Kittim really is the, the word there. Uh, the ships from Kittim, these are Roman ships, will come against him. And he's routed by the Romans, and he's commanded to go back to Syria. In fact, he's told, you go back to Syria, or you die, or we're going to fight you. You either go back to your land, and you stay put in your land, or you go to battle with Rome. And he said, well, let me think about that. And the Roman general drew, with his sword, drew a circle around him and said, you can think about it, but before you walk outside of this circle, you need to let me know what you're going to do. And, of course, he knew that he, you know, he'd already been defeated, so he had no choice but to say, okay, I'm going back to, to uh, I'm going to return to Syria. Uh, or, or he would have been destroyed by the Roman legions. Therefore, the last part of that verse, verse 20, 30, he shall be grieved and he shall return in rage against the holy people, a holy covenant, and do damage. So he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the holy covenant. Again, there's a remnant in Israel at that time, and just a remnant, a small remnant, who are loyal to the Lord. The rest of those people are secular people. They're pagan people. A lot of them worship pagan gods. And so they don't want any kind of riff with uh, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. I mean, he's the ruler of, 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 of the Grecian Empire at that point, and they, they, they don't want any riff with him. And so and they're in, a lot of them in bed with him politically. And so uh, uh, he returns, and, the, and he gives those people more power, and then he attacks those people who are the remnant, the people who are truly loyal to the Lord. Verse 31, and forces shall be mustered by him, and he shall defile the sanctuary fortress. Not only that, he's going to take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolations. There you have the abomination of desolations by Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, the first thing he does, he comes in, he puts uh, a statue of Jupiter in the temple and demands Jupiter be worshipped. Uh, he ends the daily sacrifices by the Jews, and he offers a pig, a sow, on the holy altar. I mean, that's the abomination. I mean, what did Jews think about pigs? I mean, pigs were unclean, and, that, and, that, and they represent uh, sin and uncleanliness. And so that's offered on the altar of God. I mean, in the holiest of holies, this sow is offered. So you can imagine... Uh, what the remnant thought about that. And so uh, he commits 
what's known as the abomination of desolations. And it foreshadows the abomination of desolations that the Antichrist will commit when he comes into the temple and instead of offering a sow, he actually put, brings him, he, he comes into the temple and the abomination of desolation that he commits, he declares himself to be God and, and demands that uh, he be worshipped as God. And then the great tribulation, or the last half of the great tribulation, begins at that point. All right, now, verse 32. Those who do wickedly against the covenant, shall, he shall corrupt with flattery. Those Jews who, secular Jews who are in bed with Antiochus Epiphanes, he will corrupt them with flattery. He'll give them power and, and uh, uh, money and all of that to support his, his evil agenda. But the people who know their God, this is the remnant, the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. So when the remnant hears about the abomination of desolations and when they're forced to participate in many more abominations at the various altars in Israel, they begin to rebel. And that rebellion, we talked about that, we'll go back into it again, but that rebellion is led by the house of Maccabees. Maccabees, Judas Maccabees, Judas the Hammer was his name, a tough dude. You want a, you want a great read, especially if you can get a Cliff Notes version of it, read the book of Maccabees and read about this time and about this rebellion because it's, it's a great, I mean, why somebody hasn't made a movie about it recently, I don't know because it would make a great story, uh, uh, you know, the, how these Maccabees came in and, and thousands of them and thousands of them gave up their life uh, fighting Antiochus Epiphanes and his crew. And they will be strong, and they're going to bring about the downfall of Antiochus and his friends. And in verse 33, And those people who understand shall instruct many, yet for many days they shall fall by the sword and the flame and by captivity and plundering. Israel will eventually get a great victory over Antiochus Epiphanes, and the Hasmonean Empire will begin at that point. But before they do, there are going to be a lot of them killed. Thousands of Jews were killed. Maybe even upwards to close to a million Jews were killed during this rebellion. And uh, their goods were plundered, their homes were burnt down, uh, and many of them died by the sword, but, but eventually they do get, get their victory. And they have that great victory, and now he kind of wraps up this portion of the prophecy. He says, now when they fall, they shall be aided with little help, but many shall join with them by intrigue. As they die, they start picking up more and more rebels. The rebellion begins to grow, and they win the war by intrigue. And I, I think probably what that refers to is the type of warfare that Maccabee led them into which was really more of a guerrilla warfare, something the world really hadn't seen. When these armies fought each other, they just marched and went at each other head, head on. There was really no such thing as guerrilla warfare at that point. But Maccabee knew that his forces could not withstand a frontal assault uh, on, by the Grecian troops. And so uh, what he did, he, he instituted or uh, started what's known as guerrilla warfare. And he would hit them and then run, hit them and then run, much like we did during the American Revolution, much like the Viet, Viet Cong did to us during the Vietnam War. 
And so, verse number 35, we finish it up, verse number 35. And, I mean, Antiochus is defeated eventually by the Maccabees, and the, this period ends, and he's going to pick it back up now. Uh, and 35 really is a, a verse that bridges this time gap between the time of the death of Antiochus Epiphanes and the and the uh, the uh, uh, great tribulation. This this verse bridges that time. What happens in Tigus at this point? He's fighting Israel, and he start his armies start to weaken, and word gets out that he can be defeated, and so he starts having to fight battles on every front. And eventually, it's the Parthians that, that uh, defeated him and killed him in 164. And uh, uh, that's when the Hasmoneans took over Israel. And that's when the Hasmonean Empire began at that point. And, and, and eventually, uh, pretty much ruled Israel until the time of Herod. All right, now. Look at verse 35, and we'll finish there. He says, and some of those of understanding shall fall. In order, and this is the time period. This is the time period up to the end. He's going to just give a general synopsis of what God is going to be doing with Israel from the death of Antiochus Epiphanes, from the defeat of Antiochus Epiphanes, until the time that the Lord returns. And some of those of understanding shall fall, but there's a reason. They're going to, Israel's going to suffer. He's what the angel is telling Daniel. But there's a purpose. The purpose is to refine them to purify them and make them white. What, what does he mean by make them white? Eventually lead them to the righteousness of the Lord, the righteousness of the Lord that you can only have through Jesus Christ. And so that's the purpose of all this. And it's going to all work towards the end time. It's going to work towards that prophecy in Zechariah where it says they will look on him whom they have pierced and they will weep as a mother weeps for a lost child. Israel will weep. And at that point, they will be saved. They will be made righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so, this, again, this verse uh, is just sort of a bridge until that time. And then we'll look at, when we finish up, we're really through the tough part now. I know it's kind of, like I said, it's sort of laborious to go through all of these historical facts. But isn't it absolutely amazing? I mean, again, I challenge you, get a history book of the solution that covers the solution empire and the, the Ptolemy empire during this time period from the death of Daniel until the death of Antiochus Epiphany and you will, and then match it up to the first part chap the first 35 verses of Daniel and you will be absolutely amazed at how specific and accurate those prophecies are John Valverde, in his commentary on Daniel, says that there's 135 specific prophecies in the first part of Daniel 11, in those first 35 verses that were fulfilled exactly as prophesied in history. Exactly as prophesied in history. 135 fulfillments of that first, those first historical events that fulfilled those prophecies in those first 35 verses. That's pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. I mean, 
to, for God to, to take this genre and change it a little, little bit, where prophecies are you know, usually about main events, generic events, and then all of a sudden get so specific for this period of a, two or three hundred years with this prophecy, you got, you again, like I said last week, you got to wonder why God did that. And I think the reason he did that, just to take a break and show us that, hey, he knows the future, he makes the future, and he's sovereign over the future. And if he can predict the detail of that time period, he certainly can predict what's going to happen to the nation of Israel when you get into Ezekiel and you get into the rest of the prophets. Hey, you can look at that and you can say, man, if he can predict with that kind of accuracy here, the Lord certainly can predict all of the events that are described by the rest of the prophets. And he can predict exactly what's going to happen during the Great Tribulation. So when you read the book of Revelation, which is pretty, some pretty specific prophecies too, and detailed prophecies, you can say, you can go back to Daniel and say, whoa, man, I, I, you know, the Lord could do this. He certainly, he certainly can uh, predict the future uh, for the Great Tribulation. So Daniel received this prophecy, and it wasn't long after that, Daniel would die. Not too long after that at all. He gets this vision, and, and uh, he dies. And the, then these events begin to take place one after the other. I mean, boom, 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 they take place. And then there's this gap. There's this gap, and we'll, and we'll, the gap between when Antiochus Epiphanes is defeated and when he goes off the scene and when we head into the Great Tribulation. And there's this great gap. And we'll be told about what happens in the rest of Daniel 11, but there's this great gap. But I tell you what's amazing to me, in the middle of that gap, or a few after 100 or so years after Antiochus Epiphanes goes off the scene, a couple hundred years after that, this guy named Jesus comes on the scene. And one day, after he leaves the temple with his disciples, he gives them what's known as the Olivet Discourse in which he describes great detail about the same events that Daniel describes in chapter, the last part of chapter 11. He describes the events that are going to take place in the great tribulation. How can a man do that? How can a man do that? How can a man know the exact detail of the events that were going to take place 2,000 years after his death? or more than 2,000, because we've already hit 2,000 now. How, how, how could he do that? Actually, we haven't hit 2,000 yet after his death, but we're heading there. How could he do that? Let me tell you how he could do that, because he is God Almighty. It's his story. History is his story. It's all about him. It's all about the nation of Israel. It's all about his people, the church. But ultimately, it's all about him. And if he, can, he, if he knows every single detail 
about every historical event. Remember when Daniel first had this vision, who was standing there? Who did he see before he talked to the angel? He saw the Lord Jesus glorified. And uh, the same Lord that told, was told his disciples in Matthew 24 about the events that were going to take place. But if he can, if he can, if he's sovereign over the great tribulation, if he's sovereign over all of history, over Antiochus Epiphanes, over all these things that we looked at, over all this detail, then he's sovereign over my history and your history. He knows where you're heading. He knows your history. He knows it. He's seen it already. He's seen you in glory already. I, t- I tell people all the time, you, you look at book, that picture in, book, in the book of Revelation in chapter 4 where the church is standing before the throne of God. If you could get a snapshot of that and, and, and uh, could look at it in enough detail for long enough, you would find yourself in that picture. The reason John could see that and write about that was because in eternity it's already happened. So that should encourage us all, no matter what we're going through right now. God's going God's to make things right. That's what, he was, that's what the angel was telling Daniel. Look, Israel's going to go through some tough times, some really tough times. I'm not going to paint it any other way. They're going to be really tough times. But in the end, they're going to be in glory. They're going to be white. They're going to be wearing white garments, really garments that light up. They're going to be glorified, just like you and I are going to be glorified in the end. That's the encouraging word of Daniel. It's that God is sovereign over all of this. He's sovereign over history, and he's sovereign over your life, and he's sovereign over my life. And so I can trust him. I can trust his word. And I can trust that everything promise he makes is going to be fulfilled. Everything that he predicts is going to be fulfilled because he is God. He's our Savior and he's our God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your word and we thank you for the encouragement of of this text and other texts that just show us just how sovereign you are over history or how sovereign you are over the, the specific details of history. Or that, that tells us that you're sovereign over the specific details of our lives. Or the things that happen to Israel don't seem to make sense. It seems to be like you read this text and you read about these prophecies and you read the history of this time, Lord, and it just doesn't seem to make sense. But it makes sense to you. It makes sense to you because, Lord, history is, is your plan, your, your, your way of working out salvation for your people. And, Lord, so... We need to be encouraged tonight. Help us to be encouraged. Because, Lord, you're working out details in our life, things that don't seem to make sense, things that just seem to be haphazard and, and, and circumstance. Lord, they're not haphazard and they're not circumstance. They're part of your plan for our life. And, Lord, even though they don't make sense right now, Lord, one day when we see you, they're going to make a lot of sense. And we just thank you for for your sovereignty over our lives. We thank you for your plan for our lives. And Lord, we thank you that, that one day we will be standing before your throne in glory. And everything that you're doing in our life now is just directing us that way. 
So we just thank you for that, and I praise you for that. I praise you for your, your love for us, and in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.